The reading is taken from James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce righteousness that God desires, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Thank you very much, Joan. Before I begin, thank you to all of you for your kindness and generosity at my wedding recently. Thank you for all the gifts and cards received. Very much um, welcome. Uh, Collective thank you to all. Now, I wonder what difference our faith makes What uh, impact does it have on our lives? That's the subject that we're looking at um, in James uh, throughout this series, actually, and particularly this morning uh, from today's passage. I was asked that question once the church weekend away by a friend. What what difference, what uh, what impact does your faith make on how you actually live your life? I was caught a little bit at that moment, like a deer in the headlights, didn't quite know what to say, unexpected question. I was expecting a bit more light-hearted discussion on the walk we were on. So I I was uh, caught a little bit like you might be at an interview when you're thrown one of those very open-ended questions, like when have you demonstrated leadership in the past, or uh, can you show an example of where you've shown character? Uh, Questions designed to uh, let you say anything about anything, really, and if you haven't prepared something to talk about, then you might be caught a little bit like I was caught on that occasion. Well, James is going to put us on the spot in a similar way this morning. But don't worry, I'm not going to force us all to come up with an answer on the spot. But James is asking us that question. What difference does our faith make to our lives? What impact does it actually have? I mean, if I'd uh, thought a little bit about it at the time when I was asked that question, I could have perhaps talked a little bit about my prayer life and fellowships I've been part of and the comfort of knowing God and the way that reduces anxiety in life. Uh, Instead, I just blurted out something vague about uh, giving to church. Uh, But James this morning is going to give us some actually concrete things, some actually directions about how our lives should be changed by our faith. And indeed, he will do throughout this series uh, as we look through his book, which is sometimes known as the Proverbs of the New Testament. Verse 22 
uh, is perhaps our starting point. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, this raises immediately a key concern of James. How do faith and works interact? How does our reliance on God in salvation interact with our response to God in salvation? Now, don't worry, James isn't confused about this. Some people might read the book of James and find it almost feels like sometimes it's preaching works religion. It's being very uh, activist about its spirituality. But James is not confused. Uh, He is quite clear that works of faith evidence real faith. They don't earn salvation. And in in that, he's actually perfectly in tune with Jesus himself, who, of course, said, you'll know them by their fruits. Very keen for us to have a real heart religion, a real personal response to his word, but also said, you'll know people's faith by their fruits, by what they do, by looking at the outside of their lives. Uh, Queen Elizabeth very famously said she wouldn't make windows into men's souls when she introduced her prayer book. But actually, if she'd really wanted to, in some ways she could have done, because actually she could have known people by their fruits, looked at their actions, and had an indication of where they were at with their faith. James also is perfectly in tune with the Apostle Paul, uh, who sets out Uh, the gospel in his book of Romans, but then, of course, calls us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, as our worship of God in response to the grace that we have been shown. He puts works with faith, just in the same way that James does. So like Paul, like Jesus, the Lord Jesus himself, James's starting point is grace, grace to us from the Lord Jesus, undeserved, unmerited grace, favor from him. But then he goes on to say that we need to respond actively rather than simply passively to that. Look at verse 21. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. It's not our works that save us. It's the word that saves us, the word of grace, the word of Christ, which is planted in us. If we humbly accept that, we simply say yes that is the salvation we need. This is James's high theology of the word. We've already seen it, actually, in action in the previous chapter, uh, sorry, the previous passage, rather, which we had preached last week. In verse 18, James referred to the word which creates, uh, which brought us forth by the word of truth. But the word also recreates. It brings life, as he sets out there in verse 21. Life because it gives us salvation, salvation from God's certain future judgments on the world. And we need to actively accept that, not simply passively acknowledge it, but depend on it in everything. If we were to go into central Cambridge today and hear somebody with a loudspeaker offer anybody a £50 note who would simply walk over to the Grand Arcade and register at a certain um, booth, We'd be crazy to completely ignore that. We'd probably investigate it. Is this genuine? Is this true? Are they actually offering out £50 to anybody who wants it, who just wanders over to the Grand Arcade? It'd be foolish to ignore. Instead, it'd be wise to actively check it out and accept and go over and do that. Well, how foolish would it be equally to simply hear the word 
of salvation being proclaimed and walk on by and say, that's very nice, that's your truth. I hear you saying that. I'm going to let it be. I'm not going to disturb what you're saying, but I'm going to ignore it in my own life and just carry on as I was before. That would be mad. It makes sense to check it out, to investigate it, to make sure of its truth. And then when we realize its truth, to accept it actively and to live by it. The word is, of course, a mirror for us. Verse 23 says this, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Why is the word like a mirror? Well, it's because a mirror shows us reality, doesn't it? It shows us as we really are. If we see that those of us who are men stubble in the morning, it means the reality is we haven't shaved. If we see frizzy hair, any of us, in the morning, it means we probably the reality is we haven't brushed our hair yet. If we see those of us younger, some spots on the face, it's because the reality is, from the mirror, that actually we're pretty greasy. Uh, if we see more seriously in the mirror a tumor on our neck, it could be because the reality is we actually have skin cancer, spent too long on the sunbed. We wouldn't ignore some of those things, particularly the more serious ones. It'd be crazy to walk away and forget the reality that we've seen. God's word is just like that. It shows us the reality of who we are, what we're like, what our world is like, and what God is like. And so when we see the reality of our foolish nature, our sinful, hard-hearted nature, but also the wonderful, joyful reality of free grace, free salvation in the Lord Jesus, it would be crazy to walk on by and not to accept it. So let's not uh, ignore, let's live by this. Let's not consider it simply to be entertainment or to be speculative philosophy, but realize the word is reality. It's certainly not a joke to see serious things in the mirror, and it's not a joke equally to see serious things from the word. We need to live by them. So that recognition, the action that flows from it, that's the essence of what James is preaching, running to the Savior when we see the reality of sin. But what's the evidence of that essence of faith? Well, it's pure religion. Look at verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. He's used the word religion there in a positive way. Now, religion among many Christians, among evangelicals, can be a dirty word because sometimes we set up this false dichotomy between religion and relationship. How many times have we heard that phrase, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion? It's a, a nice bit of polemic, uh, a nice pithy phrase, which has a serious meaning to it, that of course, the heart of Christian faith is Jesus, not rules and regulations. But it's a slightly one-sided use of the word religion, isn't it? I'm very conscious of this because one of my top Christian authors, John Calvin, he wrote this weighty tome called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, not The Institutes of the Christian Relationship. That's not because uh, Calvin was uh, a ritualist. In fact, he's one of the leading anti-ritualists of his day one of the leading reformers, and yet he was still happy to use the word religion in relation to spirituality, true spirituality. 
Religion, of course, is just a neutral word. There can be good and there can be bad religion. Good religion, of course, relies on Jesus' righteousness, whereas bad religion establishes and seeks to establish its own righteousness. Calvin was preaching good religion that relies on the righteousness of Christ and then works that flow out of grateful acceptance of that salvation. As we lean on Jesus, he changes us by his Spirit, and we bear that fruit that the Lord Jesus talked about. And there are two particular evidences of that fruit that James focuses on in today's passage, which we're going to spend the rest of our time having a think about. And those two are restraining the tongue and giving respite to the needy. Firstly, restraining the tongue. He's already talked again uh, in the book so far a little bit about restraining the tongue. So you might remember from last week's passage in verse 13, James warned against thoughtless speech in relation to problems of theology. Uh, People saying, I'm being tempted by God when they're uh, under trials and temptations. When actually, of course, temptation comes from the enemy, not from God himself. And part of James's continuing answer to that particular pastoral problem comes in verse 19 at the start of our reading. Dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, but slow to speak and slow to become angry. The tongue causes all sorts of problems, not just for issues of theology and theodicy, but also for personal problems and situations as well. All those times we've stubbed a toe or failed an assessment or had a tiff with somebody, how quick the temptation is to say something that we then regret in the moment. Is the tongue restrained? Now let's remember that it's the word that can save us, verse 21, The starting point for James and for all the Bible writers is grace, unmerited favor for us. But true and faultless religion, which actively accepts that grace, includes restraint of the tongue. A little bit like the works and faith uh, issue that we've referenced earlier, this issue of the tongue will also come up in a big way later on in James as well, and particularly in chapter 3, we'll have more of a think about the restraint of the tongue and the damage it can cause. But for now, James says, verse 26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. A tight rein, uh, image of horses and horse riders. I don't have much experience with horses, unfortunately. I haven't spent enough time over at Newmarket, perhaps. I didn't grow up with a pony. I just uh, settled with a hamster, uh, which I did not try and ride. Uh, Probably good for the hamster's sake and for mine. I did, however, once have a polo lesson uh, when I was at law school, and it was before the financial crash 2008. The school had far too much money than cents, and it threw money at giving all the law students polo lessons. How crazy does that sound today? But anyway, it was quite good fun, although it was quite terrifying having to keep control of a huge animal and control a stick and a a ball at the same time. And I kept very tight rein on that horse. I held on pretty tight for dear life and tried to make sure the horse was doing something vaguely like what it was meant to be doing. I imagine that's probably what it's like for more experienced riders as well. They're still having to deal with a very big animal, and they probably keep pretty tight rein on them. If you don't, they'll probably go off course and cause lots of damage to people and to property. They're big animals. Now, there's also quite a lot of big animals in the room today, although we can't see most of them. 
because they're tucked up inside our mouths. They're, of course, the tongue. The tongue is a big animal which can cause lots of damage when used wrongly to people and property. It looks small, but it can do a lot of harm. How easily a harmless joke can cause hurt and upset to friends. How easily a broken confidence can cause a rift with people who we were previously close with. And how easily one little white lie can lead to a whole web of deceit. Pure and faultless religion restrains the tongue. How much better it would be to be thought simply a little bit boring than to plunge in with a thoughtless comment. And that's particularly so perhaps in our online conversations, which have been so much more a feature of our lives the last couple of years, in whether it's emails or more instantaneous messaging on social media, how important it is to restrain the tongue, restrain what we write, uh, rather than plunge into error. Pure and faultless religion restrains the tongue. But secondly, it also relieves the needy. Look at verse 27 again. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Orphans, those without parents, widows, those without husbands. In the first century, not having a husband or a father spelt disaster. No protection, no provision, loneliness and being outcast in society. Now, it's the word, of course, let's remember, that can save us. Uh, That's where grace is found. But pure and faultless religion, which actively accepts that grace, includes relieving those who are needy, taking them into the home, into the family, giving them a seat at the table, giving them a role in society, worthwhile things to do, employment, if we can. In the 21st century, there's much, of course, less of a focus on the male provider, but still so many needy people in society, 80,000 children in local authority care, and a huge problem, particularly here in Cambridgeshire, of children in social care. Uh, Only 6,000 or so adopted across the country every year, many more needing uh, adoption and fostering, a huge problem that we still do have today. I'm not going to try and shoehorn her into every sermon I give, but uh, many of you will know I'm a big fan of this figure from church history, Lady Huntingdon. Uh, I've previously extolled her virtues uh, about uh, her evangelism to the English aristocracy and her support of uh, chapels across the country and evangelists like George Whitfield in the 18th century. Less known, perhaps, is the way that Lady Huntingdon also supported orphans and invested huge amounts of her time and energy and resource in creating an orphan house in Georgia, in the new colony of Georgia, as it was then, across the seas, called Bethesda. And that orphan house of Bethesda is still going today, still helping out needy children in Georgia to this very day. What a wonderful legacy to have left. And so even if we ourselves are not in a position to adopt or to foster, we can certainly be aware of the problem, we can pray about the problem, and perhaps, like Lady Huntingdon, give towards Uh, alleviating the problem of orphanage. But it's not just orphans who James mentions, also widows and widowers, I suppose, as well. There are over three million widows across the country today, lots of people with varied needs. Some widows, of course, extremely independent and active and able to um, take care of both themselves and others, but others in a much needier situation. 
Of course, many material needs, even for the poorest, are looked after by the state under the welfare system we have. But there's an epidemic, of course, isn't there, of loneliness. And what can we do about that particular need in our society? Well, we can certainly be aware of widows amongst us, in our communities, in our localities, uh, knock on a few doors nearby, ask after people, and check up on them, uh, give a phone call. Let our religion in both of these things and the other aspects mentioned by James later in the letter be pure and faultless. The word is a mirror presenting the Lord Jesus in all his reality. And as we look at that mirror, let's not forget the grace that we have been shown and the grace we are called to show to others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so sorry for our lack of restraint in what we say and our inactivity in relieving the needy. We know that you hate sin and have compassion on the poor. We pray that those feelings would be ours as well as we see you in all your glory in the mirror of your word. For Jesus' sake, amen.